Tonight, uh, for those who hasn't been before uh, to any of the talks, most people have heard some good. So I'll, I'll just look a bit of context. This is a journey um, that I deliberately have avoided doing for years, which is the topic of hell. Um, so I've called the talks Hope and Hell. And um, we're now, I think, in the sixth talk. And I've positioned them very importantly as an, it's an exploration. Um, I actually began with uh, a quote from F.F. F. Bruce, uh, who's really one of the great Bible scholars of the 20th century, um, who wrote the introduction to uh, Fudge's book on the topic, and he actually said it's far more of a grey area than traditional evangelical theology's ever been prepared to admit. Um, and I think he was very wise about it. He, he didn't come out in any position, but he definitely said it's a grey area. And he, he said it's absolutely clear Paul didn't talk about eternal torment. So, you know, if the major architect of the Christian church saw, saw no reason to discuss um, hell or, or, or this kind of fiery judgment, what, what, what about it? Um, the... Um, and I've been very um, prayerful as I've gone through it. I've, I've, I think I've been on a journey um, which I think is a typical journey, which essentially is, when I say it's a typical journey, um, what I mean is there seems to be a similar intellectual pathway that I've seen from people like Gregory of Nyssa, through to modern people who end up at least having to confront this, and that is people with a big eschatology. The bigger your eschatology is, the more you get landed here. Um, eschatology being the study of God's great epic eternal kingdom. Um, and my, uh, I want to repeat my goal in these talks, which is uh, one of which is really for us all, including me, to get a richer eschatology. That's much more important to me than the actual specifics of universal salvation, a bigger picture of what on earth God's doing. Um, and I think, we, I think human beings, we always narrow what God is doing. We're always catching up to him. So that, so that sense of this uh, end of all things um, is of, of uh, if you go on the journey of contemplating this doctrine, whether you agree with it or not, it does end up expanding your mind. That's point uh, number one. Point number two, I've deliberately um, said that I will advance, the, you know, the way to advance something is inquiry. And um, I think the way to advance an inquiry is to, is to take a hypothesis and work with it. So I'm taking this hypothesis and I'm working with it and, and, and working it through. Uh, would I die in a ditch for it as the doctrine in the same way that we should over, for instance, salva over the cross and the resurrection? No, I don't put it quite in that category. I'm very attracted to it and I actually believe it. But nonetheless, it's still, it's, it's, um, what's more important to, to, to me is that I want to get it back on the table as an orthodox option, which is where it began. Uh, that, and I want to get off the table as a heresy eternal torment in hell. So to me, that's my, you know, that's my strong position. Anyway, with, it, with that, let's, let's get going. This one is, um, 
you know, whenever you discuss something, you know, you try and flesh the hypothesis out, and we've done that um, over a, a few talks. And then you go into like almost prototyping, which is, well, if you did believe this, what about that? And um, that's what I want to do tonight. It's kind of like, well, so what? What would be the consequences of this? And the particular one I want to look at tonight is probably the one most people raise, which is what does this do to the gospel? Doesn't it just kind of emasculate the gospel and evangelism? And what's the point? If, if, if apocastasis, which is, um, can be reduced to universal salvation, I mean, what's the point? That's what I want to look at tonight. Now, um, so, uh, let me just... Looks like this thing isn't working. It's uh, evangelism is the is the is one of the consequences or, or apparently problematic consequences. Let's just say problematic as well. We need to rethink. We need to rethink this. Uh, there are others uh, which are associated. I'm not going to talk about the others tonight because it just blows the scope. But just to give you an idea. I think the whole idea of the church, so what's the role of the church? I mean, what, what's the elect got to do if we're just the same as everybody else? Um, who's in, what about included and excluded? You know, what, where does that fit in? Um, conversion and the gift of the Spirit, which I suppose is part of evangelism. I mean, what's the actual offer? Is there such a thing as conversion and gift of the Spirit? Because that tends to create a special class of people. Where does that fit? And um, sanctification and discipleship, because a lot of... The message of sanctification and discipleship. This one, I think, is actually more pro more problematic for the traditional Reformed gospel than it is for the apocastasis gospel. But nonetheless, the issue of well, how would I then be living? How would this affect my living? You could, for instance, claim that if you're going to tell me that everyone's saved, it doesn't matter how I live. So you could claim it's it's going to open up to some kind of licentiousness. So they're interesting issues. Um, now, for all of those issues, you can have two kind of answers. One would be a defensive answer, which is a yes but answer. The other would be, well, let's, let's take this as a way to kind of rethink things. Perhaps it could blow our minds a bit. Perhaps it could give us a new paradigm. I'm very much there in that space. Personally, I'm finding this, ex even the contemplation of it, extremely positive in lots of ways. And, 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 and I guess um, that's growing on me. So let's... let's um Oops, a daisy. Sorry, just hold on one second here, please. Okay, well, let's, um, let's move on to uh, a little bit of a background around the doctrine. Um, surprising advocates and possible positions. So, so this is, we're just stepping back. Um, I found this helpful. Anne and I were talking about it um, the other day. Uh, this is a spectrum of people who believe in versions. None of them believe in hell. But the spectrum um, is, is interesting because rather unusual people believe in universal salvation. Karl Barth, uh, Jürgen Moltmann, and we, Anne and I discovered C.H. Dodd to our astonishment. Has anyone here heard of C.H. Dodd? Yeah, so C.H. Dodd, I mean, these, these men are not lightweights. Uh, these are leaders of reformed evangelical thinking. So, so, and, uh, it's very interesting. It's so not as if believing in the apocastasis, apocastasis, <laughs> 
puts you in an edgy camp. It's, it's, and it's actually surprising. Um, the Fudge is at that end because Fudge is, is essentially saying, well, no, hell is an absolutely terrible doctrine, eternal, as in eternal torment. Um, it's, uh, and, and his book deconstructs it probably as well as anybody does, lays bare its platonic roots and gets rid of it. But he's in an annihilationist. In other words, we lose life. We lose life. That's the end. If, if you're not in Christ, you lose this thing called life. You lose yourself, which is pretty... I actually think it's not a bad place to start um, from because, frankly, it does confront people with the reality of death and people often have a kind of a false, a false platonic, uh, you know, like, like um, mirage of uh, the immortal soul to console themselves in the face of death. So we have balloons being released at funerals and this sort of stuff. That's very platonic. That's not Christian. And it's good to blow that out of the water. So I actually think... It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not a bad place to start. And, and one of the great initiators of atheism, um, uh, uh, a man called, sorry, um, uh, Feynman, um, no, Feuerbach, sorry, Ludwig Feuerbach, wrote a great attack on Christianity um, which was essentially not attacking Christianity, but attacking this kind of platonic view that people wouldn't, were not willing to face the nothingness of death. It was too awful to think about. And, and he put Christianity in that camp. There's, there was no need to put it in that camp. It's not in that camp. So yeah, Fudge has got a good, good, good uh, approach. The other end are Maltman and Dodd, who are, it's actually doctrine. I mean, Maltman's very strong. It's biblically and theologically necessary to believe this. Um, they don't say there, that there are no problems with it, but it is biblically and theologically necessary. Anyone here read much Maltman or, um, heard, or heard of Maltman? Uh, Jürgen Maltman is Miroslav Volf's teacher. And um, he is a uh, massive intellect and profoundly spiritual man who has more than anyone in recent times, put eschatology back on the table. He wrote the, uh, the great book on uh, hope. What's it called? The Theology of Hope or something? Um, it's just a massive picture of the end of all things in Christ. Uh, so Maltman's interesting. Uh, Dodd um, was, I think, professor of divinity at Cambridge or, yeah. And Dodd, I mean, I've been attracted to Dodd for years. Um, simply because of the profundity of his mind and his eloquence. Um, he wrote, uh, so, so I don't know how, this is his epistle to the, a commentary on the epistle to the Romans, which I'm going to quote on tonight. Um, he's written four books on John's gospel, which are just, you know, he's the only one I've found who's equal to John in John's kind of metaphysics. He wrote a whole book on the context of John, the four great philosophical schools. So the, a whole book on of which a quarter's on Philo as an example, and then on the kind of the, the Greek. He's a, just an incredibly articulate and and um, educated man on the time, but mainstream great commentator. He's not a card-carrying universalist, but you'll you'll see what I said. Bart is interesting because in a way, Bart's a position that I really uh, could advocate to almost everybody, which is. 
It's not a doctrine, but we're commanded to pray for it, to hope for it, and to entertain it as a possibility. So we're in the position of Abraham praying for Sodom, and we are meant to pray for it positively and argue God into that case. That's, that's how he would put it, which is, you know, so they're all different dispositions we could arrange ourselves on, and I found that personally useful. Do you like that sort of arrangement? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Useful. This is Dodd on universalism. Um, Anne and I stumble on this because we're doing Romans and we're reading Dodd for fun at the same time. And it's in Romans 11. Now, by the way, Romans 9, 10 and 11 is generally the part most of us, most of us have essentially turned Romans into chapters 1 to 8. <laughs> and then you stop at 9 because like, you get into really difficult stuff in 9, 10, 11. It's all about the Jews. So they just don't read it. Of course, Rick Watts is very well known for saying if you don't make 9, 10, 11 like the heart of it, you haven't got it. And probably Tom Wright's there too, but uh, so is Dodd. And we've really got into it. And I think they're right. It's breathtaking. And 9, 10 and 11 actually confront this issue very, very much if you start to look at it. But, but when he's in, in 11, this is, I'm just giving you a, a taste of it. The theme, this is all quoted from him, but, but it's, a bit, it's, it's summarising about three pages. The theme of Romans 11, 11 to 29, is now summed up in a parallelism that leads to the conclusion, God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That's a quote. The final aim of that purpose, God's purpose, is a state in which God's mercy is as universally effective as sin has been. He chooses his words so well. And, and that... In other words, it is the will of God that all mankind shall ultimately be saved. We didn't expect this. We just stumbled across it. Oh, this is interesting. <laughs> it has been thought incredible. This was a new paragraph. So he then get, gives a couple of pages. People say, argue against this. It has been thought incredible that Paul should have committed himself to such an absolute universalism. He then has another few pages at the end of which he says, whether or not Paul himself drew the conclusion, it seems that we must draw it. From his premises. So he's a, he's a very sophisticated interactor with the text here. He's not actually just bowing down before Paul and saying, Paul's got all the answers. Perhaps, perhaps we've got to draw the conclusion. For you. Then he says, actually, we don't have to. But there is evidence in the epistles, he then spends time going to the rest of the epistles, that Paul expected, this is really important, but the best statement, I think, of epicastasis that I know of, this one. Paul expected the spiritual powers now hostile to God and to man's salvation, hear that? The spiritual powers hostile to man's salvation, ultimately to be reconciled to him through Christ. If Paul believed that such a thoroughgoing reintegration of the universe was the end of the divine purpose, then he cannot but have thought that a complete reintegration of the human race was included in it. And he may be allowed to have meant what he said in its fullest sense that God would have mercy on all. If we really believe in one God and that Jesus Christ truly shows us what God's character and attitude to men are like, then it is very difficult to think ourselves out of the belief that somehow his love will find a way of bringing all mankind into unity with him. So, so that's C.H. Dodd and Romans. Absolute mainstream, orthodox, one of the great biblical interpreters of the evangelical world. Okay, so um, let's move on now and, and dive into this question of evangelism. Universal salvation. I've always said that that's a phrase I actually don't like using, 
but it's the phrase that gets used. Um, so I'll put it in inverted commas to acknowledge the fact that it's actually a phrase that I'm using for convenience that I find is limiting. So I think the question is simply this, that universal salvation doesn't it ruin evangelism by demotivating speakers? What, what motivation would I ever have to go to China and like Hudson Taylor and convert everyone? Um, they're going to get saved anyway. What, there's no point. Um, uh, takes the teeth out of the, out of the argument of the gospel because there's no negative consequences. You know, I can't tell people, there's, you know, look, if you don't believe this, well, then guess what? If you don't believe this, it doesn't matter. You, you, that seems to be neutering it. And for the audiences itself, there's no demand I can make on them for a decision or anything. It appears um, that, in fact, you know, I, normally you can tell people there's a train coming down the train tracks, uh, get off the train tracks, but you're actually telling me that there's no train, there's no train wreck. Um, so no worries, you know. So as I see it, it looked at like that, the, the, this summarises, I think, some of the problems. That makes sense? Um, so let's, let's look at them. Uh, firstly, as I've always said, if you ask the wrong question, you will get the wrong answer. And um, if, I think evangelism is... In, in this doctrine is problematic if you insert universal salvation, all you do is insert universal salvation into exactly the same mindset as the typical reformed gospel. Yes, it is problematic. Um, you actually have to have a bigger gospel. And the word, in the, because the whole, really the framework of reformed theology that I lived in for 30 years of my life is individual salvation. That's the, that's, that logically is, is the landscape. That's what it's all about. Nothing much else fits into it logically. If, if it does, it's a big stretch. So, so let's move on from that and uh, look at the Reformed Gospel because I think there are problems. I'm not prepared to sort of just say there are no, no problems with the evangelism and the reform. I think there are real problems with the way the gospel is normally, the four spiritual laws. Um, and I've lived in them, and some are psychological and some are doctrinal. Um, the first one I've already mentioned, that the focus on individual salvation, quote unquote, is really narrowing the scope of the word salvation. I mean, I just get it, and I listen to sermons in church all the time, and salvation is narrowed down to forgiveness from sins. Any reading of the Bible, it's a far bigger word than that. But that's what it does. And I don't, think, I don't think it is unfair to say that this concept of individual salvation delineates the boundaries of the Reformed Gospel. That's what it's all about. Let's find a little icon up on the right for individual salvation, <laughs> this little, little character. Um, secondly, it is... Uh, a lot of the Reformed Gospel is built on the substrate of Platonism, the heaven-hell thing, which we needn't go into now, but that's, that's really important, certainly from the August, Augustinian tradition. I think this one is, in my experience, very problematic. Um, practically speaking, that the heavy emphasis on faith alone makes discipleship um, and moral codes an optional extra. I mean, you try not to, but it sort of does, you know? Uh, there's this kind of ground zero obliteration I make on all moral codes. 
The only point of any of them is to show that you can't get to heaven, that only faith saved you. And, and that is, um, that practically speaking makes action in the world problematic and disconnected from the salvation message. I get this kind of, now you're saved, and then it's hard to fit um, any real call to work in the world onto that psychologically and intellectually. I mean, people are trying, but it's not a natural flow on. The, the, the call is to make a, a decision for Christ, quote unquote. Um, this is the psychological one, which is this incredible focus on the decision, the anthropology of a decision and a conversion raises big problems. Um, apostasy is one. You know, as I've gone on, I've had the surprising and sad thing of watching outright evangelical Christians drop their faith and become atheists. Very sad, but I know that some of those people. Now, what do you do with that? Well, you say, well, if you, you start getting tortured with that, if you, yes, but perhaps they were never saved, or um, yeah, but uh, they'll come back and, and all this. But still, we're wriggling out of this problem. The problem of rewards is absolutely, I've never seen it motivate people, except it, it did motivate I was struck with my uh, lovely friend um, Lippius, the apostle of uh, West Papua, who were going to the airport after one of our visits and hard work. And he said, "Ah, oh, Tony, uh, this is rewards. He's really looking forward to rewards in heaven. I, but people don't talk about rewards. It's sort of like me wanting to be a prefect when I was at school. Don't tell anyone. You know, it's just like, uh, and, and anyway, rewards, where does that fit in? So it, it's problematic. And I think the, other, the third one is really... I think difficult for children born into Christian families, which is religious introspection, which certainly um, one of our children has been through. Like, am I really saved or not? Because you, you haven't got a dramatic conversion. So the terrible experience of multiple altar calls where people actually re... That's actually a, a, a real symptom. It's not a good thing. Um, and then I think the last one is... a. We've talked about this one before. The focus on forgiveness and the cross diverts theological attention from resurrection. And life, so it's not as if you know the, the 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 package of evangelism built around the traditional reformed gospel has got no issues. These are some issues, and there's some issues that I I think the broader scope of the apocatastasis does address. So let's uh, the individual salvation one. I think is really important, and I want to focus on that. You can remember we did a pretty important layered diagram, which I think was helpful. Now, this came from the second talk. Down the bottom, the, the traditional individual salvation, the zone of, of God's work is humanity and um, morality. Uh, however, layered on top of that is clearly a socio-political zone. It's absolutely clear to me the majority of Revelation is about politics. It's about kings and empires and Babylons. It's not about individuals. Um, and a lot of Jesus's, um, particularly his judgment passages, are clearly to the ruling class. So there's a God. And, it, and if you start to say, well, God created humanity to rule and govern the earth, wouldn't God be incredibly interested in, in the evidences of rule that he's seeing in front of him? Um, and I think the, that's where the New Jerusalem becomes the hope. Importantly, which God alluded to, Bentley Hart makes a lot of, and I think it's really important. There is this strong 
belief system clearly around angels, principalities and powers that was very central in Paul. That's who we're really fighting. And, um, you know, it's the book of Revelation makes it explicit. Anne and I were talking about it this morning. Look, I think it's actually dead right. And as someone who's studied history, like one of the great mysteries to me is, is where this mob insanity takes over. You can look at the Nuremberg trials, you can look at North Korea, where vast communities just seem to get swept up in some sick, bad idea. And I've never, ever been satisfied, logically speaking, that that's the sum of the parts. There's a spirit at work there that seems to take over the minds of people. Whole eras get darkened. So, look, to me, the best way to read that third zone is Star Wars. I think Star Wars has got it right. I mean, the human secular imagination has got it right. That we're in the middle of a cosmic battle. They're right. Uh, John's just doing an early version of Star Wars in the book of Revelation. Um, and, um, but then, so, on top of it all, are all the paradoxes of creation. We are living in a terrible drought. You know, we we're on a phone, a business phone call. I wasn't my friend to Japan and the client was just so stressed out because it's 40 degrees and there's never been anything like that in Tokyo. And I don't know about you, but I just get sick at the thought that the earth is getting destroyed. And you're just hopeless against it. Well, this is a problem. Now, that's the zone of salvation. And it's all promised in the Bible. And Christ's kingdom is over the lot. Over the lot. Judgment and salvation is promised on all of those levels. The right-hand side being, I think, the kind of promises of the outcome. So I think the layered sense of the multiplicity of God's working, all of which is actually, I think, a framework like this is necessary to read the Bible. Otherwise, you just t- you, you try and squash everything down to the bottom one. Now, clearly, individual salvation is a part of that, but it's, 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 it's a fractal of that rather than being the whole of that. Um, the individual salvation concept uh, uh, actually stops you reading the Old Testament. Uh, it really screws it up no end. It tends to bifurcate salvation in the Old Testament from salvation in the New Testament. And salvation in the New Testament is about a new class of salvation, which is saving you from your sins so you don't go to hell. Um, and uh, that is uh, clearly not the Old Testament. Let's just look at the book of Ezekiel, which um, we're we're studying at the moment. I mean, Anne and I are, because she said, why don't we study some of the psychedelic books that make no sense? Okay, (laughs) let's let's study the one we're most scared of. Right, we'll choose Ezekiel. (laughs) uh, Luckily, we've got lovely friends like Ian Proven whom I can write emails to about it. (laughs) He helps us. well, what about Ezekiel? Well, this is what he, this is, I mean, Ian's got a tremendous, uh, you know, one hour on Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel. It is our, an iteration of judgment and salvation. That's, that's the theme of the book. And they go in that order. I judge so that I can save. And it's an expanding scope. So the first, Ezekiel 1 to 24, I'm focusing the themes of ju- God, of judgment and salvation on Judah and Jerusalem. Because it was written in 596 to 586 it was the time between the you know the first deportation and then the real sacking of Jerusalem in 586 so that's the focus there Judah and Jerusalem which is okay well perhaps we could say yeah well that's the beginning that's going to become the church as the new Israel but then what happens it gets expanded to the nations 
25 to 33 are the same cycle, judgment and salvation, now applied to the nations. The words that Ian used in the tape were very interesting. He did use the word universalist, view of God. God's interests are universal. And he doesn't change his criteria or his promises to Edom, to Egypt. That's what happens in those middle ones. And then the climax of the book, 34 to 48, is the cosmos is redeemed and the temple of God fills the earth. So it's, it's pretty magnificent mm -hmm. when you look at it. And, and the, the concept is God, if you, if the linear concept is an expanding, vastly expanding at every phase scope of God's cycle of judgment and redemption. Which, by the way, just to talk about another issue of election, which I only allude to, is the incredibly important concept of a first fruit. So God always, with the end being everything, begins with a small thing, a first fruit. Um, right. Uh, if you take the universalist, sorry, the individual salvation view, you get into troubles in the New Testament. Uh, I recently heard a sermon on, this is Revelation 15, uh, 2 to 4. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, referring back to 14, which is the, you know, the new Israel, the church, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. So the sermon made the comment that this is about victory and safety for the people of God. So there's a myopia here that's forced you to not read what's actually being said, which is it's actually the people of God talking about the nations. Now, the word the nations all throughout Revelation is universally used for the Gentiles, the unbelievers, the opponents of God. What's going to happen to them? They will all fear the Lord. All nations will come and worship before you. So the, now what, what you make of that is one thing, it's there. But what I'm, what I'm saying is this individual salvation filter just stopped the preacher from seeing that at all. And just equalizing nations with the people of God. It's not, it's, they're two huge classes in Revelation. It's any literary reading, it's obvious. You'd, you'd be failed if... You know, you gave me a, you know, a University 101 essay on it and didn't pick that. It's not like it's an esoteric point. Rightio, so that's some of the clearing of the ground, which is looking at some of the, I suppose, narrowing of the traditional way we look at evangelism. Let's move on to building uh, a future picture. I'm sorry, I'll just... Um, So this is a sort of a, I'll begin with a more defensive answer, which is that it's possible to say that if you did believe in this doctrine of universal salvation, it only, it doesn't change much. You can actually, uh, you can just 
get rid of hell as eternal torment and plonk into its place either annihilation or some kind of judgment. I mean, that's actually true. It's not, it's, you, you don't have to, there's nothing in the doctrine, I'm, I'm going to show you this absolutely in a moment, which I'm, I'm going to give you a summary of every evangelical sermon in the Acts of the Apostles. And the quest is find hell in it or any impl implication of it. There are about 12. So you, you can just plonk it in and, and, and work around it. I think that's probably true. Um, but I'd go further. There's this idea that if there's no kind of fear, you won't believe. I've definitely heard that. I said, where's this coming from? Because everything I've read is this is a good news gospel. Everything I've read is the psychology of Romans 6, 7 and 8 is fear doesn't produce righteousness. Love produces righteousness. If I try and fear you into obedience, you become an automaton, you become a Pharisee, you become some distortion. Love creates obedience. Acceptance, we know this in our own lives. If someone's a bully and being bullied, they'll bully everyone else. If someone's loved, they become expansive. So it's, it's, it's illogical and, and, and to actually say that if I remove fear from the preaching of the gospel, it'll stop people believing. I just think that's rubbish. And um, I think of this, that's why I got the photo, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. No mention of judgment in those particular ones. And, and so this idea of the beauty of the gospel is, and the good news of the gospel is important. I was going to give my experience. I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. I'm an evangelist. I love sharing the gospel with people. And um, I, as I've said before, um, lived a significant period of my life at university as a kind of a prisoner and victim of the full implications of the hell-based gospel. Because I actually think the only reason that people survive it is they don't believe it. If you really believed everyone around you is going to get fried for eternity, you'd be, you'd be absolutely, it'd drive you mad, but you'd be talking to, that's what I, so I carried, as I said, I carried tracks with me, preached in trains, I, I took so seriously the burden in Ezekiel that if you don't say something to them, their blood is on your head. I just took that seriously. Let me tell you, it messed with me. But let me also tell you, it bore no fruit. Not a single bit of fruit. My father, who was agnostic at that stage, was a lovely man and said, but, in, but he, was, he just said, Tony, it's not great marketing techniques. Yeah. And... <laughs> He was right. <laughs> what is my experience? Well, my experience is, you know, probably my most epic brother in Christ is Tony Morgan, whom I've had speak here. Tony and I went to school together. Um, Tony was a member of Crusaders. I, it was an Anglican school. I grew up in the Open Brethren. I spent my time fighting the system at every moment I could. I fought, uh, um, and I was, uh, in a sense, out on a limb. And I was sure Tony was a nominal Christian. He was not born again. So I had this idea I've got to convert Tony uh, because he's, he's a nominal Christian. He's not born again. And because um, we this is, I suppose, we were then in year 10. This happened in year 10. Something happened in my heart. The Lord sort of convicted me. No, you're wrong about him. You know, treat him as a, as a believer. 
I can't remember. It was a, de a definite moment of prayer. Something in my heart changed. It was definitely a command of God. So I just changed the discourse with Tony. And we just going home, I'd talk to him about, you know, Bible reading. I read. It was just so fantastic, Tony. I just, it was this beautiful psalm. You know, I love Jesus so much, I'd give my arm for him. I'd say that to him. And I'm just going on. And Tony goes home that night and he kneels before his bed for three hours. And he says, I couldn't say anything like that, God. I couldn't say anything like what Tony said to me on the train. And he ended up giving his life to Christ. And he's had a, you know, a huge influence uh, ever since in his life for the Lord. Once I'd accepted him, <laughs> that bore fruit. And that kept going with me. Um, where I haven't gone out to convert people, it's just an overflow of life. Why, I've got to speak about this, you know. And Anne and I had the wonderful experience recently of meeting someone else. It was Paul Whitaker at who came from the, you know, part of that era. Barker, who just said, I said, how did you become a Christian, Paul? He told me, so it was because of you and Nigel Compton. I said, well, I never spoke to you. No, it was. It was all because of you guys. You guys, you said, half our year are Christians. It's all because of you two guys. Nigel's with the Lord. He died of cancer. Well, I didn't speak to any of them. I don't know what happened. So... My experience tells me that the overflow of joy and the good news is it's, it's very winsome. God worked with it. That's my experience. Peter? Yeah, a few years ago there was a survey done in the UK about um, the relationship between people belonging to churches and having a, an explicit Christian faith. And the vast majority of people in the churches who were surveyed had an experience of belonging before they came to an experience of Oh, that's great. I'm just going to repeat that for the tape. Peter's made the point there was a survey in the UK that about people being converted in churches and the vast majority, their experience of conversion was that they first belonged to the community that led to their conversion. So the attitude of we're all of some kind of common brotherhood is not a bad place to start, it seems effective. So let's just say that's the case. Um, the... Uh, I've quoted a book before, and this is from a book written uh, around about 1900. Um, and it's actually a book that has got a lot more, I think, justification through the work of Romelli. It's actually called The Universal Salvation Was the Orthodox Doctrine of the First 500 Years of the Early Church. That's what the book's called. By The guy wasn't into short titles, but he was into a title that lets you know where he stood. Um, uh, he, he was Baptist pastor in America, John Hansen. And this was really intriguing to me because I think there's a lot in it. And as I was reading, I was thinking what Edwin Judge told me, which is there's no question that the spread of Christianity in that first 80 to 200 years was a spread of a movement what, unheard of in human history. How did we get from 120 people to this infection that had covered the entire Roman Empire. I said, well, historically we can answer, you know, some things from the top level, but he said to me, we don't know. Organically, we don't know. He said, we as Christians could believe it's the Holy Spirit, but we, we don't know. It was incredible. And the conversion was vast. Now, this guy, I think, gets really close to it. And this is headed, this is Christianity, a cheerful religion. I've never heard of you. <laughs> right. And... And this is a, a summary of what he said. I really like it. When our Lord announced his religion, this world was in a condition of unutterable corruption and gloom. Decadence, depopulation, insecurity of person, property and life were everywhere. Rome held supreme sway. 
Now, I don't know if you know what it was like to live in Rome, but I've read a fair bit about it. And the prescription system in Rome that was um, in the era just before Christ was unthinkably cruel. I forget who the battle was between one of the three kind of generals vying for position, but essentially one of the parties decided that they were going to cleanse all the senators and rewards were put out. This is what prescription is. If you, this is the senators. This is not the slaves. If your name was on the prescription list, and, and, and some of the senators were so tormented by this, they said, at least come clean and tell us who you, who you want to be killed. About half the senators were killed. And when the prescription list went up, if your name was on the list, there was a reward for bringing your tongue and ears in. I mean, it was just a savagery that... And this is people, you know, like the era just before Cicero or around Cicero's era. And these people were not civilised. So, you know, it's fair enough what he's saying here. The civilised world had lost half its population by the sword. There were, there were universal depression and melancholy. Into their darkness came the religion of Christ. Its announcements were full of hope and cheer. Matthew Arnold, famous British poet, I don't even know if he was a Christian, says, Christ professed to bring in happiness. All the words that belong to his mission, gospel, grace, peace, kingdom of God, living water, are brimful of promise and joy. And his cheerful, joyful religion at once won its way by its message of peace. And for a while, its converts were everywhere characterised by their joyfulness. And just suddenly struck me, he, he's right. What a light it must have been into that world of good, good news. You know, um, Christianity was everywhere at first a religion of sweetness and light. The early era of the church was its, quote, blessed childhood. He says this was an early innocence that only lasted a couple of hundred years. But from Augustine down, the Latin reaction was away from the genius of Christianity. Good news, and perhaps we've de lost sight of just what good news it's meant to be for everybody. Um, but let's now go on from that into the sermons in the Acts. This is a bit complex. We'll put it up on the website. It's actually not complex, just there's a lot of it. What I did was I went, I thought, this is data. You know, it's ethnographic data because we do have paraphrased records of all the evangelical sermons in the Acts. Broad variety of speakers, broad variety of audiences from Jews to Gentiles. So this is, and I presume that, you know, the summaries are fairly well chosen. What I looked for was in each one of them has got, every argument's got a climax, it's got a theme, it's got a proposition, and there's some kind of response asked for. A simple question. Do I find any vestige of a threat of hell anywhere? Well, I think you know the answer to that. But it's very, very good to actually read them all through. It's probably too complex to go through at the moment. But, the, 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 you know, Peter begins, the first one, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. Repent and be baptised and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Again, Peter, you are heirs of the covenant God made. Through you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. That was the climax of his second sermon, where the, where the word uh, apocatastasis occurs. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. 
Peter again, know this, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You notice how it's actually a declaration of Christ, mostly. They're not saying you've got sins and, and, and Jesus died to forgive. No, no, it's he's Lord. He's Lord. He's King. He's the fulfillment of every promise. And the response, there's no response. They told them to shut up. It's just a bit like me. Well, we can't help speaking about this. It's just flowing out of us. Sorry, we can't stop. Then Stephen, of course, the longest sermon in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, first martyr, and his climax is the most high doesn't live in houses made by men. Um, really, his response is, what kind of house are you going to build for God? That was his challenge. What kind of house are you going to build for God? What are you going to do with this God? Philip, beginning at the scripture, he told the Ethiopian eunuch all the good news about Jesus. Uh, Philip didn't tell him anything. He said, oh, here's some water. Please baptize me. Um, Peter 10, in Acts 10, this is the first move into the Gentiles for Peter. He is the one, Christ, whom God appointed judge of the living and the dead. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So there is nothing in this, anything to do with threat. If you don't, watch out. Nothing. It's like, come, be baptized. And the declaration is actually not very... It's a more a declaration of a person than it is a mechanism to get your sins forgiven. It's, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. Um, the, uh, the second table is, second page continues. Um, Peter in chapter 11, Paul in chapter 13. This is the first Paul one, so Acts 13 is Paul's first sermon. God has fulfilled this promise by raising up Jesus. By this man, everyone who has faith uh, is made righteous in everything which the law could not do. The response, he said, well, beware, lest what the prophet said should happen to you, which is, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to perform a work in your days that you would not believe even if someone told you. Just, it's a warning, but it's a warning, like the stupidest thing you can do is not take notice of this, like the prophet said. Um, and uh, many of the Jews followed them, and Paul urged them to continue in the grace of God. It's inclusive and going on um paul 14 we are bringing you good news he's not left himself without testimony filling your hearts with joy turn from these uh worthless things to the living god who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them i might i just better check that one because that sounds like 17. now that sorry 14 i need to check 14 15 and 17. let me just do that now to be sure I've actually got that one accurately. No, is it, it's correct. I've got it right. It, it sounded so much like Acts 17 to me, but it, it, it's the people when he healed in, in Lystra and Derby, he healed people and they were worshipping him. And he said, don't worship me. I'm just like you. Um, so that's it. We, this, is very, this is so much like Acts 17. Uh, I guess it's so stark. I, I had read it. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to serve the, the living God. Um, in the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he's not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in the seasons. He provides you with plenty, fills your hearts with joy. 
How's that for a message? It wasn't you go to hell. He said, God's been filling your hearts with joy through the rain, through the, you know, just wake up and see. So ooh, this is a long way from a scary delivery. And therefore, turn from these worthless things. The therefore, this is, you know, rearrange your, your mind to the, to, to the living God. Acts 17, I'll, I'll talk more about in a moment. That's the famous Sermon on Mars Hill, which is very important because it's the first major, it's the first major sermon to the Gentiles by Paul. And it's the one that's most, um, I suppose, flexible in its presentation of the gospel. Uh, and um, Acts 17, later on, he set a day in which he will soon judge the inhabited world through a man he marked out, offering an assurance by raising him from the dead. Then he, the, uh, Now God calls aloud to all human beings everywhere to change their hearts. By the way, in the response column... You'll, that's an important word, and I'll comment on that one, and that before I, 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 then I'll move on. Repent is a badly translated word. It's got religious connotations in it that sort of says guilt, say you're sorry. Um, so Bentley Hart argues this heavily, and I, I think he's right. The word is metanoia, change your mind. What we're arguing for is shift your thinking, change your mind. Change, it's, it's not like this narrow religious experience of saying I'm sorry for things out of guilt, it's changed your entire thinking system, of which part of which is saying I'm sorry, but, but it's a much bigger word. And so he says, chain, he's, in Bentley Hart's commentary, he says, I've got a choice. It's either change of mind or change of heart. And it's kind of a bit of a toss-up. You could say mind, but in the modern world, that sounds a bit logical. Change of heart is also implied. So whenever you see the word repent, Feel free to say it's a change of heart, change of heart and mind. Um, and then finally, I love this in 26 when Paul's before the governor. I'm, you know, I'm saying that Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and then to the Gentiles. That's his great claim. And his response was not, you know, it was, look, I want you all to be like me. I pray that everyone in this room listening to me becomes like me, gets my experience. So I think that's a pretty uh, clear indication that this idea of hell is not in the gospel as presented in Acts. It's, uh, it's, it's actually built more on the declaration of um, the governorship and majesty of Christ with a multitude of responses, which the preachers often didn't even do. The people themselves said, so what are we going to do about this? And their response was, okay, we'll be baptised. So just a question, is that, do you find that an interesting summary? Hmm. Yeah. I'm just noticing a number of points there that the presentation of the gospel is constantly referring to God's big story, the big narrative, what's God doing, which is, as Tom Wright keeps saying over and over again, God's single plan through Abraham for the nations. That is the whole story that focuses on Christ. Our preaching so often is, you say, much more this kind of psychological thing around those issues of, yeah. of guilt and other things. And there's always a place for guilt. I mean, we're, sure. human beings are always guilty about stuff. I mean, yeah. that's, 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 that's clear. We want to be delivered from, from the, the wrong guilt. But, yeah. but there just seems to me so much of the presentation in the New Testament... It's the big story. It's the big story all the time. And so it seems to me the gospel is telling people how they can become part of God's, a, a big, God's story. big story. Yeah. I think that's a really good good point, Peter, uh, just for the tape again, Peter's saying that these presentations 
are really re revealing God's big story, as Tom Wright said, beginning with Abraham. And they all, they all say, well, just let me go back a bit and give you the context here. You know, Stephen says, let me go back and start at the very beginning. You know? and, and that, I think, and then narrows down to where you are. But, the, but now it's being part of the, the claim is come and join this big story. Um, and so Acts 1.8, which is you are my witnesses, that's what God says to Israel in Deuteronomy. It's what Isaiah reminds him, says in Isaiah, you are my witnesses, you are my witnesses. Jesus says to the disciples, you are my witnesses, and therefore disciples are his witnesses. Witnesses what? To the story. Yeah, witnesses to the story. It's, it's, that's right. So therefore, that's great, uh, Peter. Thank you. Because I think these, these ones are clearly, um, they became very skilled at telling the story, but they change the story depending on the audience because the audience does or does not have the background. Okay, well, let's keep going. Um, I want to move now on to a bit more of a new paradigm. So what would it, you know, I think these are, are interesting. What if we said, what, what is this doctrine of universal salvation or apocatastasis uh, do. I think it's a paradigm shift in what rhetoricians call the total act of discourse, which is a technical phrase. It means I don't just change the story, I change the audience, I change myself, I change the relationship between me and the audience. So um, <coughs> if you play with a total act of discourse, you really play with people's minds. You change the channel, you change your position, you do lots of different things. So let me just um, unpack that a little bit. So this is what I would call a diagram of a total act of discourse. Um, in rhetoric, which is the act of discourse, you've always got a speaker, you've got an audience, and you've got some text or argument. They, those were the three parts of rhetoric. And if you're a great rhetorician, you've got to work on all three. So you have to work on yourself. You've got to believe what you say, you've got to be authentic, you've got to have depth. It's not just the argument, then you put yourself into the argument. And the argument's got to be flexible, because what we saw in Acts were arguments that were very flexible. The audience means you've got to accommodate what you're saying. You'll have a view of your audience, they'll get it. If you're contemptuous of them, they'll get that, a million miles away. If you honour them, they'll get that. So, you know, you could argue that what God did with me and Tony Morgan was he changed my view of my audience. Um, so then this is, well, what's the audience going to do? What are you asking them to do? Because rhetoric was about persuasion. Um, rhetoric was about, I'm not just telling you some story for entertainment. There's a so what, which is what we're talking about. Back on the left, there's what I would call my worldview or paradigm. Everyone's got it. Let's call it the cosmology. So they're the kind of five elements of what I would call a total act of discourse. And I think this apocastasis doctrine, um, or certainly the eschatological framework that it comes from has huge um, paradigm shifts in each of them. Our cosmology has to change from the word world being often a negative thing to the whole of the created zone. That God's interest is the entire created order. You've got to think about the cosmos, you've got to think about matter, You've got to think about gravity. You've got to think about kingdoms and politics. God's interests are every inch of his creation. It's cosmic. And I think we should announce that to people. We're actually philosophers with a cosmology. So I'm not here pushing a religious point for you to come to church. I'm pushing a cosmology, which is a view of reality. Um, and also from individuals to the entire cosmos. So Tony, does that mean when we talk about 
reigned against God. Yes, I mean, I mean by worldliness and that's, I mean, that's a clear, that's a clear concept in Christian theology for good reason. Is that a subset, if you like, of the bigger story? In other words, there is, the redemption is setting free the world under that imprisonment. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So yeah. So, 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 there's so, a place for that sense of world. So, so this, this yeah, yeah, Peter's asking about the word world. The word, and you've raised this really important point. When I grew up as a young Christian, the word world was universally negative. You know, the lust of the world, you know, flee from the world. And, and I spent my early Christian years trying to flee from the world. Now, it's true that sometimes the world in the, you know, that is used negatively, but equally it's used positively and neutrally as cosmos. Now, the point about the word cosmos, and Bentley Hart is very good on this, we don't even have a mental construct for it. We don't live with the same vast cosmology the ancients did. We are living in a post-Cartesian world that's individualised things and psychologised things. That was not their view of reality. Their view of reality was more that layered diagram I had. Angelic beings, huge dominions, um, kingdoms, nature. So getting our mind back into the... And having a view about what this reality is. You can start the gospel here very well. So that's number one, getting a big picture. And that's a work that uh, all of us do. Number two... I think this is really important. The rhetorical stance, which is you know, how I position myself as speak, I think it goes from, from us versus them to we. There's no question it goes to we. Um, and importantly, these are really big words, it goes from instead of to on behalf of. I think people feel, hear the gospel, I'm saved instead of you. No, I'm saved on behalf of you. And that's where Israel went wrong. Israel thought they were saved instead of the nations, not on behalf of the nations. And so they took God as their own private property to run their own systems in. And the prophets told them again and again, they, you read the Psalms, you're saved to be a message to the earth. So that's a stance we can have. Um, the, the gospel itself, I think, goes from, and we've talked about this before, rescue to recapitulation. Recapitulation is a big word. Um, wrap your head around it, learn it, look it up, study it, try and get the conceptual framework. It's Irenaeus of Leon's great word to, des to describe the work of Christ. It's the translation of the Greek word in Ephesians 1 verse 10, one of the high points of the gospel. In all wisdom and insight, God has made known to us the mystery of the plan that he purposed in Christ, that in the fullness of times, he would recapitulate all things in Christ, all things in heaven, all things on earth. He will, you could translate it, sum up, synthesize, integrate everything into Christ. That's one of the words, when I was, you know, about 20 years ago, I began, I read, I read verses like that, and at least I had the wit to, to know I have no idea what he's talking about. How on earth can you pack all the universe into one person? It's like not going to fit. And, um, and I just thought it was hyperbole. But yeah, it's, it's just a flourish. But I knew in my heart, really, Tony, you don't see what he sees. And the seeing of what he sees is, uh, is part of this journey of the huge eschatology. Um, and very much more bringing the resurrection as part of the mechanism of salvation, not just the cross.
think the audience, we go from seeing them as sinners to seeing them as made in the image of God and declaring that of people. Um, from optional extras to God to central to his purpose. There's a lot behind that. Almost too much for me to talk about tonight. But I do think that most of my life I thought, you know, that, every, that it's optional extras. If God gets some into heaven, it doesn't matter. You're an optional extra. hope you can squeeze in. Um, the epic vision that Gregory of Nyssa had is that all of humanity, God has decided he's going to commit rule to the entire scope of humanity and every single one of them must be included in that. So you're, not, you're central to his purposes, which is as much a responsibility as is good news because he's not going to discard you. So he's going to work with you. So that's, you, you definitely get a different view of people. And I think, you know, when you look at, even when you, when you look at people, you know, so this, I think unintentionally perhaps, but the doctrine of, you know, total depravity, oh my Lord, you know, um, and seeing people as sinners, you know, nowhere in the New Testament does Paul ever refer to anyone as a sinner. They're saints, including the Corinthians who are screwing everything up. So I think we can have a declaration. Even when I look at people, in my mind I'm saying, you're made an image of God. It really helps me. I don't, it doesn't come out, but there's this sense of, I just want to declare that over you. So when it says, when Paul says, all have sinned, yes. it doesn't say, all are sinners. He said, oh, yes, that's, that's good. he's actually looking to their potential. He's looking to their pot- potential in Christ. He yeah. does describe himself as the worst. He does, yes, himself. he does. But, but uh, he doesn't ever <laughs> use that as an epithet for anyone else. Rightio, the, this is really important, these ones here. What's the so what? I think I really want to say that judgment moves, I think, from a binary club membership. I mean, we don't ever say that, but I think people say, okay, join the club, in the club, out of the club, whatever. The elite is <laughs> something... Yeah, which it which is it's 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 hard not to dress it up, but people feel it. On the, uh, you know, you, you're talking about you know in 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 and out. Two evaluation of all deeds. I really am quite happy about this one. I don't know how it's going to happen. I'm prepared, to, but let me tell you, every word you say will be evaluated. No one is getting away from this. You know that 85 year old Italian who got. Buried in a, in a gold casket, the Griffith drug dealer who everybody knew ordered the execution of Donald Mackay, he hasn't got away from it. No one will. Yeah, and how much is this in the instinct? I mean, we're watching Line of Duty, uh, which is, if you haven't ever seen it, a fabulous BBC show about corruption in the police force. And it's this, the bad guys keep getting away with it. You know, we all say, no, no, damn it, they didn't catch that guy. You know, they didn't pin him. We want justice to happen. We're saying it's going to happen. That's a very good news. Um, nobody escapes his gaze um, from an individual to a nation. Don't know how he's going to do it, but he's the judge of all things, which is how Paul climaxes acts. The responsibility it goes from decision to a change of heart. We talked about that. From save to from hell to join early, join big, Align now with the future truth. <laughs> Get on the winning the, the TV ads, we've got them friend. <laughs> so um, this paradigm, I think, is a very expansive one. Uh, it's also very challenging. These are, you know, this is not a wimpish gospel. These are areas of massive debate where I think our debate needs to be had today. Each one of them is. 
the cosmos, like the, the new atheists, anyone who doesn't believe in God, the ball's, sorry, the ball's in your court because I think we exist. Do you agree? So you don't, our position is it had a beginning and it had a creator. There is only one other position. I want you to know, know it. You believe an, in an eternal cosmos. Richard Dawkins believes in an eternal cosmos. So you've got to shove that in their face and say, that's what you're believing. You're telling me there's an eternal... Now, that's a, that's a, that's a big call. That's very differentiating from the Dalai Lama and others because he actually said, he's a lovely guy, very intelligent man, but the doctor of creation is shocking to them. So there's a, it's a big debate. It's a big debate. And I think Bentley Hart's done us a very good service when he argues the evolution thing... Whilst you can argue that, and I personally don't believe in complete evolution, I believe in some moderated one, there's no way that evolution explains how a rock becomes a person. <laughs> Sorry, it just doesn't work to me. It's a totally inadequate hypothesis. But that's not really where you have the debate. He says, move it right back further, existence. Something from nothing. That's what... And what is the first prayer of the church in Revelation you're worthy because you created all things. By your will, they exist and have their being. That's, that's a huge proposition that's very challenging to the world today. Everything's, once, you, once you go there, you can see everything starts to go from that, doesn't it? Because if we're, I'm now saying there's a creator, which is, means I'm moving from an impersonal view of the universe to a humanistic personal view of the universe. I do not believe... The universe and cosmos is a totally objectified natural order that can be understood by physics and science. So, so there's a big debate over there for us to be had. The rhetorical stance is really important in today's world. Because in today's world, you're not allowed to have a point of view. So you actually, today, I think, have to have an epistemology. You've got to be prepared for that fight. And you've got to throw the epistemology question back in people's face, which is, well, hang on. You believe what you believe. I've got an epistemology that I know about. You have got one you don't know about. So, you know, you're dangerous to yourself. Um, if you haven't thought about that question, I have at least thought about it. Um, how do we know what we know? You know, um, we're in a world of relativism, which is every opinion is equally important. Don't disturb everybody. Um, <clears throat> you know, equality of views. Um, if you haven't ever lived through the university tutorials where this is such a prevalent worldview, then you haven't lived. I love it because I, can, I went to this years ago. I was doing my PhD. I went to this. I only attended one seminar, um, weekend seminar. And everyone was there pretty left wing. And they're very much in this sort of equalization of all views and total subjectivity. As long as you believe what you believe, we all believe the same thing. Let's not disturb one another which means no one's got an opinion and no one's got an agenda. So we're there, 30 of us, and at the beginning, the guy who was the professor who was heavily in this camp, we, we just... And so this thing floats around, and I just got frustrated halfway through, and I gave some strong point of view, and then this... I'm just feeling this strong masculine influence coming into the room, you know. <laughs> well, I got a point of view, and what you said is ri ridiculous, right? Anyway... The whole thing fell apart because you've got to organise things and it was so funny to watch because the guy organising it went through a total character change. He's so frustrated by the last day he was yelling at everybody to get things in on time and not doing anything. Um, to have a point of view today is we have to actually argue that it's really important to have points of view 
and it's re and they de the fact that they are not the same is not the end of the world. It's the beginning of a debate, and the debate is not an equality, and they're not the same, and there are good views and bad views. That's an epistemology. Um, the uh, equality is such a sick word today. It's just such a you know it's a word to kill discussion everywhere, not just in religion but everywhere. Because I don't believe in equality. Like some people are dumb and some people are smart. You know, just that's how it works. Um, and um, well, some arguments are dumb. Sorry, I could see my wife looking at me. Some arguments are dumb and some arguments are smart. Like incompetence exists, right? Now, I think this is a really important one. Um, salvation. We're actually making a claim out of history. And I think there is a really strong argument to be made that the concept of scientific proof, Ian Provence very good on this, has jettisoned the concept of historical proof. Yeah, and this is really important. I mean, when someone like Peter Fitzsimmons, who's a rabid atheist, sort of, you know, yells to Simon Smart, show me one shred of evidence, well, you just throw the Bible down and say, start there. You're a writer. Do you not believe in history? Now, a guy called Cody's written a big book on it as to how testimony, written documents, got invalidated and replaced by science. Well, if you're if you've actually into science, I'm not a scientist, but I have designed the experimental design technique for Rio Tinto's research labs, and I wrote the R&D manual for Australia's biggest R&D company, so I think I know about science. If you're really tough, you've got to actually create an experiment in front of your eyes that reproduces reality in front of your eyes. And if you can't do that, it's not science. And even if you can do that, even if you can do a bench test that proves that some chemical transition takes place, what will happen is once you scale that up, it doesn't work anymore. So your bench test didn't prove it anyway. That's how BHP lost $2 billion on their hot HBI plant. They got it all wrong. So scientific proof has got to be a repeatable experiment in front of your eyes. But we don't live like that. I mean, I'm having a big argument. I've had big arguments, which all, unfortunately for me, require me to find a document. Because I was pretty sure that we agreed, you know, on this scope of work or whatever, and it's written down. If I can find the document, QED, that, that's what every like law case is built on. So where do we get into the common view, testimony is not evidence? So, that, so testimony is evidence, and, and, and that is the basis of the New Testament. He rose from the dead, we saw him, we touched him. So underneath this claim in evangelism, there's, there's a big argument to be had. Um, this is the biggest of all. We have an anthropology that today is heavily under threat. I mean, our company is owned by Accenture, it's a world of big data and artificial intelligence. When I was a professor at Carnegie Mellon, the visiting professor in 1995, my, I had the privilege of working alongside Herb Simon. Now, Herb Simon won the Nobel Prize in economics. He was 80 at this time. Hugely intelligent man. But, but he also, with Alan Newell, in about 1950, uh, 50s and 60s, were the first people on the planet to codify and create a computer program for a human decision-making process. So he can rightly claim, and he has a big ego, so he does, that he invented artificial intelligence after he won the Nobel Prize for economics. So the very phrase, artificial intelligence, let, let, let me tell you that, you know, I, I've 
got a slide that's not relevant here. I gave a talk on the battle, you know, this kind of the, the, the creeping battle over artificial intelligence and the loss of jobs. It's a battle between the machine and the mind. And the machine is doing more and more of what we thought only the mind could do. It's doing the job of a lawyer. It's doing the job of a radiologist. It's doing the job of a physician. And underneath it, make no mistake, there is an anthropology that we are a machine. Herb Simon said to me in a conversation we had, your mind is a machine. Said it straight out. Just biochemistry. So this is where the battleground is. We say, sorry, we're made in the image of God. And obviously there's a huge debate under that where we actually are standing for something mysterious in us that participates in the life of God. Um, that's that's non-reducible to, to the physics and the chemistry. Finally, um, the judgment. I think we need to move the debate from an angry father figure of God to a much more welcoming view of the justice of God. Responsibility is really important. We, we live in an age of implicit nihilism, which is I can't interfere with you. You just believe whatever you want to believe. We've had some sad debates with people around how you bring children up. Well, the children, we can't interfere with the children and tell them, here's the Ten Commandments, because you know, that interferes with their, it's like a return to Rousseau, the, the noble savage sort of thing. So, sorry, I didn't mean the children, I meant Rousseau. Um, but the, the, the end of that, as I think Bentley Hart has brilliantly said, is, and so did Miroslav. He and Miroslav said exactly the same thing. Miroslav's first talk out here was nihilism which Nietzsche saw, that, that once I determine meaning, there is no meaning. I am now the centre of the universe, and frankly, that's a pretty unstable place for me to be um, because I know I'll change my mind tomorrow. So there is no truth. And if we want to know where depression is coming from, I think that's a lot to do. I had a conversation with a young woman of some time back, and she, this was where she was moving. You know, as a young mother... I'm sick of saying I'm the, I'm the arbiter and creator of meaning. Is there a meaning outside of myself? Now, if there is, you're accountable to it. If the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not kill, it doesn't matter if you want to, it's, it's an external measure. So, that, so that's where there's a debate to be had. So, so my point being that right across this vast eschatology, there is, uh, it's not like this is a wimpish thing. This is, this is, but it draws... I think a more expansive debate to be had. As one person said, start earlier. It'll lead to where you come with Jesus, but these are more expansive beginnings. Does that make sense for people? So when I say it changes the total act of discourse, I think it does. And when you move to these grounds, people respond to the debate. I was with my trainer this morning, great guy, and he's, I don't, you know, so we have debates over lots of things, including faith. He's a young father, great guy. You know, he's probably, he's not an atheist or anything, but he's certainly no Christian. I said, so what are you doing with your kids? I said, you know, because he loves his kids. He's a great young father. I said, you, I said uh, how are you going to teach him about God? Or are you not going to? Oh, he said, well, send him to a Christian school. I said, yeah. And then I said to him, I said, look, I reckon you ought to read them Bible stories yourself. I, I've got some good examples of, you know, like Sally, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Sally Lloyd-Jones's book. I said, you should do that. I said, and I, then I said to him, and I could say it with passion, if you don't give them, a compass outside of themselves. You're doing them a terrible disservice. You've got to tell them there's a meaning outside of yourself. One of our young, gorgeous grandkids is 
very philosophical. He's only four, but he wants us to read the Bible to him because he, he knows in his soul he needs a grounding outside of himself. So that's pre-evangelism and that's beginning to say, well, let's say we're in a world that God created and so on. So, that, so I think this is really helpful to open up and have a much more easy discussion with people rather than, excuse me, um, you're a sinner, you're going to hell. You mightn't like this, but... Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm finishing uh, with this slide and a, just a quick couple more. That could be a vain promise, but... So I, I did Mars Hill against this. It fits in really well. Um, essentially, Paul begins is, um, let me tell you about the Creator whom you experience daily through, with joy and bliss. That's what he virtually says. Um, rhetorical stance was very much we. He actually said, I, I really, I've been studying you guys. You're really serious about meaning. Really admire that. Um, I can tell you're inquirers. I can see you're yearning for a meaning in life. That you're, this is what you call the unknown God. This sense of transcendence, there's something else. That's what I want to talk to you about. Um, he's, he's only, he never mentions the, the forgiveness or, or the cross. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead as the sure sign that he rules the entire cosmos. Um, his view of humanity was, was, he didn't actually say you're made in the image of God, but he said you're, you're in a communication discourse with God all the time. He's reaching out to you through the rain, through the sea, through the wind. He wants you to talk back to him. He's absolutely uh, alive for, uh, for us knowing him. Um, and he's going to judge the universe. He's, he's put and put the universe to rights. And he's demonstrated that by raising Jesus from the dead. This is responsible, he says, because now God's raised the stakes. We can't argue ignorance anymore and prefer other manifestations to God. So uh, other manifestations of truth to God. All right, uh, I'll finish on this and one more. This is true. I did think to myself, what warnings could we give people? Well, if you give people a warning or a so what, it's actually good to think of a metaphor. I begin to, you know, okay, come on, you just can't trash the idea that I'll get rid of the fear based you're going to hell. Well, what do I replace it with? I thought of three metaphors, which I think are interesting. Uh, right, this is what Peter said, write your story in this big story now. I'm telling you a big story. You can write your story in it now. I think the threat is the longer you wait, the shorter your story is going to be. And you might end up not having any story to write. You actually might just be a spectator. I actually think you'll probably get there, but you could be a long way off from a spectator. And you will have uh, the terrible, if only, sense of a missed opportunity, which is one of the worst experiences I have in my life, which is... You know, I had this experience like you know, someone writes a book and I've been thinking about it for 10 years. I just never got around to writing the book. Um, so I think this is like the saved by fire, but without rewards. You'll take nothing from this life into the next. That's, I think, a really sobering. And I think that's absolutely a fair warning. The second one I like, which is invest early for big returns. Um, the earlier you invest in something, uh, the better the payback. That's the Amazon story. The Warren Buffett story is a, is a personal one. Uh, this is from someone who knows, where, knows the area Warren Buffett lives in. So this is a real life story. He still lives in the same house I think he's always lived in. Um, and uh, his neighbor 
you know, who is friendly with Mo Lawrence and his neighbour, because this is when Warren Buffett was, what, 35. They've been living together, for neighbours, for 50 years. And, of course, Warren Buffett's giving you investment advice. The guy followed none of it. So it's sort of like, well, if I had listened to Warren <laughs> all those years ago when he wasn't famous, now he's famous, it's too late. Because the longer you wait, it's increasing cost and decreasing rewards. Um, a lot of the metaphors in the, in the New Testament are very economic like this. They're about investment. You've got one life, invest it for big returns. Um, blessed are those who haven't seen but believe, Jesus said to Thomas. You know, if you wait too long, the doctrine of apocatastasis will say that everyone will believe but they'll see. So, but you're much more blessed if you don't, um, if you believe before you see. And the third one is uh, be a player, not a back row spectator. I think this one's actually relevant for no matter what you believe. Join early and be a player in the game by aligning your life now to the ultimate truth. Otherwise, you won't be a player at all. You'll be standing room only. You'll be a spectator on the outer reaches uh, and you'll be ashamed you didn't act earlier. No matter what you believe, this is very much, I think, in play because of the letters, the seven letters, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation make a promise to overcomers and they are all written to Christians. There's a problem for everyone. There's no way it's, this is the, the, the end of those letters, which are very challenging, can be construed as written to an unconverted audience. And it's saying, if you stick with it and overcome, you'll rule with me. If you don't, you won't. So, you know, no matter what you believe, you have to handle those, those seven letters, plus other stuff like it. So I like the idea. To me, the richness of the apocatastasis doctrine lets you handle it very easily, which is get in early, rule now, because I'm, I'm now going to align my life with ultimate reality. It'll cost me. I'll feel stupid doing it, but I'm going to buy the ticket early, and I'll be a player in the game. I'll rule with Christ. I won't be watching it all happen. And I don't think everyone will rule with Christ. That's my view. He who overcomes will rule with me. So they're sort of three, I think, paradigms around a challenging so what um, that take you out of the narrow go-to-hell one. And you could, you could use them no matter what you believe. I think they're all, uh, they're all interesting. Um, so uh, let me finish with this slide, which is reframing the gospel um, Using the ABCD model, I'm reprising a slide I used a long time ago. The ABCD model is the structure of, a, of an argument. You've always got to begin with what's problematic. That's the A space. I think we reframe the situation as actually God's problem, not ours. Uh, God's purpose. So, so if you look at what is pr problematic, um, one sense of problems is it's broken, we need to fix it. That is actually a low class of problem. A very different class of problems, what's called a design problem, which is nothing's broken, but I wish it were better. So we call that frustrated purpose. And it's where most human beings do their actions. If I want to build a house or renovate a room, it's not that anything's wrong. I just want it to be better. So I think the universe, you know, we can say God has a frustrated purpose. He's begun something and he's frustrated. Um, I think the message to people uh, in creation is it's full of promise, but the meaning is really threatened, mostly by death. Death mocks meaning um, and seems to promise what it doesn't. Uh, it seems to make a mockery of every promise of life. I think we should declare hope and vision in God's ends, not ours. And our declaration is there's a new creation, not heaven and hell. 
where meaning will in fact define the entire cosmos and life will be dominant. Death as a system will be obliterated. No matter what you believe about the lake of fire, one thing's for sure, death goes into it, which means death dies, which means it doesn't continue, which logically means you can't have eternal death. I mean, eternal death is an oxymoron, right? Um, and that this is going to happen on every level, cosmic and personal. It's a huge declaration of hope and possibility. And that the code, the key to the mystery was, this is really important, always going to be a human being. This would never be a top-down solution from God. It was set up so that a man from below, not God from, not God from above, had to solve the problem and recapture purpose in the cosmos. Had to. And this is a mystery. And finally the mystery got unlocked. And that man was Christ, who secured the rule and meaning for all of humanity and all of the cosmos. And he is therefore the template for what is to be truly human. He's the measure and definition of what is to be a human being, and he smashed death in the resurrection. The so what is uh, join the divine economy. It's a great word, that one, by the way, economos in the Greek. It's kind of the divine activity system. Join it. And the community of the spirit now. Uh, he, I think the declaration is he is Lord and King and you do what you do with the King. Uh, you obey and align and participate now in the coming reality and rule. Don't conform to the present kingdom and bring forward the day of the Lord. So I think there is a massive gospel in the, the so what's of the uh, apocatastasis. That's it. <laughs>